0: You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee on a beautiful, fine Kansas day. It is gorgeous out. And I know that because I'm upstairs in Studio B. Normally I'm in the basement. I don't know what's going on, but it's Studio B upstairs with a window. It's actually my son's bedroom. Kelsey is meeting... On Zoom down in the main office, and so I got bumped upstairs, which isn't bad. I kind of like the view, although I hear things I normally don't hear. You may hear construction workers and whatnot in the background. Uh, It's how we do life. It is what it is. Good to be with you guys. I have some unbelievably exciting news to share, and I can't share all of it. I can share a lot of it, but not not all of it. Uh, The short version is: after a year of meeting online, almost entirely on Zoom, we've met four or five times in person. The bridge has landed a place to meet on a weekly basis. Sunday mornings, live, together, corporate worship. Like, I am so excited, I don't even know how to act. And uh, I can't tell you exactly where, can't tell you exactly when. I can tell you this, near and soon. Okay, I I mean, by soon, I mean you could conceivably, in the next three days, buy bananas and those bananas would be good when we are meeting in person. Okay, it's the, that's kind of the banana half life. That's how we measure time. And you could you could do that. So buy your bananas, do whatever you need to do very very soon. We will be rolling out information specifics about where we're going to be and who is speaking on that first Sunday. I'm so excited. It's not me. It's not me. It's going to be a really fun time. If you are looking for a high production top quality, everything, perfect, nice experience, um, this this is probably not it. Okay, that's just not us, all right? We we are not that. We are little, rough, and ugly, and beautiful to the Lord. And the Lord is opening an opportunity for us to meet, and we're going to do it on a weekly basis. If you are not connected somewhere, if you are not a part of a local congregation, you're in Kansas City, we would love to have you. Um, details coming soon. I know, I know, it would make logical sense to give you all the details right now, but there are other people that I need to tell first, and uh, the details will be out pretty soon, and it's going to be pretty exciting. Here's the interesting part. The message that I preached on Sunday, which you are about to hear, if you're still listening, is one that was delivered without knowledge of this coming together, okay? And there were some things I said in the message that matter in relation to moving on to a physical space. And uh, it didn't land until after the message was, was preached. It really wasn't even formally in the works until after the message was preached. So that's kind of fun how the Lord led us on that. Speaking today on spiritual boredom, why are we bored? What does it say about us when we are bored with what God is doing? Stay with us and keep your ears tuned for a announcement about specifics of where the bridge will be very, very soon. As a title this morning, if you need a title, we're going to call this Combating Spiritual Boredom. Uh, there, fatigue is real, okay? And after what we've all been through for the past year, I think we all have probably earned, if there's a fatigue badge, we probably all get one. And uh, along with fatigue comes the idea of boredom at times. I ran across a a statistic the other day that really made me think. For decades, from the beginning of the time when we started measuring this in the United States, uh, about 70% of people were involved in a local congregation somewhere. 70 percent of people claimed an affiliation with a local church that might be membership it might be faithful attendance but in some fashion about seven out of ten americans had a place they called a church home for decades now through the turbulent 60s and the 70s that numbers began to shift a little bit and when it was measured in 1976 the number that they got was 68 percent and church leaders were shocked where did two percent of america go 2% of America had dropped off the grid in regards to the church. And and that's a lot of people. However, between 1976 and the year 2000, that number dropped again. And we thought 2% was a big drop. That number dropped another 20%. To the point now where only about half of Americans would say that they are associated with a church. And it didn't even drop in percentages. It dropped in how we define involvement. Those 70% for decades and decades would have said being involved in a church meant going three or four times a week. Now that 50% means going about once a month. So not only are fewer people committed, they're not even committed at the level that the the larger group was just a few decades ago. Most people are far more committed to their choice of fast food than their local congregation. When you say how many times you've been to Chick-fil-A, that's a significant number. When you say how many times you've been to church, that's a lesser number, but they say they're as committed to one as the other. And then COVID hit and everything went online. Today, we don't even have a clue what the numbers are. Uh, I have lots of friends who talk about their online audiences surging, but when the dust settles and people start to regather as they are, what they're finding is their online audiences are not even remotely uh, adding up to who's gathering. And I think that as things clear up, we'll see a massive shift in who attends and who attends where. Why all the long decline, and now with the sudden fruit basket upset of congregations with people's connection, why is that? In a world where so much has been inconsistent over the last year, you would think people would be eager to get back to what feels normal to them. Uh, You think it'd be better than the unfamiliarity of staying home. You know, like Withrow said, it felt so great last week to just get up and get the kids together and and go and do. It felt normal. Why will there be this upset in the uh, level of commitment to a local congregation or perhaps what congregation they're committed to? Is it because their former church wasn't preaching the gospel or because there were people they didn't like at that church? No, it's just that they had never seen what was happening across the fence at the church of what hap- what's happening now, and they can say that they were led by the Lord all day long, but a lot of them are just bored, and they looked away at what they've been committed to for a while, and they lost track of why they were looking at all. Spiritual boredom is causing as much instability in congregations and lives probably as blatant sin does. So much that it borders on sin itself, although more, it's more of a sin of neglect than anything. So I want to start with this passage from Psalms. It's not where we will spend the bulk of our morning, but it's a good illustration of someone going through a very high pressure, difficult time when it would have been easy to disconnect from what God was doing or grow bored or frustrated and then choose not to do that, choose to dive in and dive in hard. Now, before we read it, just give you a little context. Oftentimes, the Psalms start with a little line of text that aren't really a part of the Psalm itself, but they, if the Psalm is a song, then this is a little bit like the liner notes of the album. It just gives you a little bit of detail about that. And Psalm 34, depending on your version that you're reading, has some variation of this sentence in the place right before the Psalm. It says something like, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. Now, that name that they use there might be different. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it leads us to understand when David wrote this psalm. When did David write this psalm? Well, he wrote psalms all the way through his life. So often that there are regularly parallel passages in the scripture, and we can tell specifically when this psalm was written or when it was based in. Psalm 34 was written parallel to David's experience in 1 Samuel 21 and We're not going to go read it there, but write it in the margin or wherever you like. Psalm 34 relates to 1 Samuel 21 and 22. This was during David's time of being on the run from Saul. And he went from Saul's kingdom, he went to Gath, which was a city full of Philistines, where he encountered an enemy king, Achish, who is also gone by the name Abimelech. So this is the same guy that is referenced in the liner notes of Psalm 34. And David realized he jumped out of the frying pan into the fire. He left Saul, who was pursuing him, and he went to meet with this foreign king who was also angry at him. And so Abimelech, or Asic, who was threatening to kill him, He re, David reacted to him by feigning insanity. He drooled all over himself. The Bible says he tried to mark up the door, and he acted crazy. And so the angry and and uh, evil king, Asic, or Abimelech, said the words to the people in his court. He says, do I lack madmen that you have brought me this fellow? That's what it says in first song. It's like. It reminds me of the line from Jack Nicholas in As Good As It Gets, where he tells his neighbor, go sell crazy someplace else. We're all stocked up here. He's like, do I lack crazy people in my court? No, I have all of you. Don't bring me this guy. And because he's crazy or he thinks he's crazy, he sends him away. David uses the king's disinterest in him to his advantage, and he sneaks off to a cave. When he gets to the cave, his family members hear about it, and they join him. His friends hear about it, and they join him. People begin to gather to him, and the Bible in 1 Samuel describes the people that are gathered to him as bitter in soul. What a a description. They were bitter in their soul. It's another word for being discontent. Other versions elaborate on it, and it calls them in debt and distressed. David is not looking for these people. He just wants to go hide. But God is sending him these people, and they're desperate, and they're broken, and they're angry, and on top of that, they're quarantined they're stuck in a cave. Now, if you're looking to host a revolution, these are not your ideal recruits. Okay. You don't go gather up the bitter in soul, the discontent, the those that are in debt and those that are angry. And it's not like he's got a group of 10 of them that he can easily manipulate. He's got 400 rejects. And David, always a leader, looks around. It would have been tempting in that position of leadership to say, I wonder if I can trade these people for other people. Like, I wonder if I can get rid of some of these 400 that are discontent and get some functional folks here, because these people are going to wear me down. And instead, David, in great understanding and great leadership, he looks around and he thinks, what do these people need to hear me say? And in that context, that's where he writes Psalm 34. Now, let me uh, read Psalm 34 here, looking verses 1 to 8. He said, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. He's saying this to the Lord, but he's saying these to the people that are gathered around him. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name forever. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces are never be ashamed. David is pray preaching here, okay? He's praying, but he's also teaching these 400 rejects that have come and joined him. He said, those who look to him are radiant in their faces and never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. David, Who is faced with this crisis that is just unfolding into another crisis all right he was being pursued by saul now he's being persecuted by this other king now he's hiding in a cave and now 400 rejects have joined him and in that moment under great pressure when it would have been easiest to just unplug disenchanted and say i'm sick of this it's the same old thing over and over again instead he declares his fascination with the lord He says, I'm determining not to check out. I'm determining to press in. His praise will continually be in my mouth. Come on, guys, magnify the Lord with me. If we look to him, we'll be radiant. There are angels encamped around here. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed will we be if we take refuge in him. Blessed is the reprobate. Blessed is the one in debt. Blessed is the one in despair. This discouraged band of 400 who might say, I'm tired of trying to pursue the Lord in this. It's not working. I'm bored and I want to move on. In 2020 and 2021, the church has spent an entire year in a cave. We might not be in debt. We might not be a reprobate, but we are something that is arguably more dangerous than either of those. We are easily discouraged. And we can even say we may be growing bored. Do you ever look at history and look at a certain segment of history and say, man, I wish I'd have been alive during that time. Like, that looks interesting. I wish I'd have been a part of that. We're alive during one of those times, and we don't even realize it. We're alive at one of the most uh, uh, disrupted times in history where anything can happen, and we're bored. And I want to think one of the things that contributes to it is uh, a combination of unlimited options that come from only a couple of narrow choices. And it's led to a cloud of boredom over our culture. You can buy anything you want in your pajamas from your bed. But it probably comes from the same store every time. You can watch anything you want on your laptop. But every night you spend more time choosing a show than you do watching a show. And sometimes the entire entertainment of the night is trying to choose the show. You can see any flavor of church that you like, but when you do, it always feels like the same three songs, maybe a different video wall behind them, and something that you heard a series about last year, and we feel bored. Lots of choices, but for whatever reason, the packaging bores us, and when we are bored, we say things that aren't even true to justify our boredom and our despair. Yes, there's lots of options available, but we're bored. Our house has a walk-in pantry and it holds a lot of food there's a reason we eat a lot of food and it doesn't matter if we have been to the store two weeks ago or we just got home from a costco run at some point a child will go to the pantry and open up the double doors and they will look in and they will say there's nothing to eat here now we have been blessed and we have done with very little at times, but never in the history of our family has it been true to say that there's nothing to eat. We have always had something to eat. When we or a child says we have nothing to eat, what we're saying is we're bored with the options that we have. Juice boxes, they're always square. Peaches always have a pit. That cereal doesn't interest me, but I'm bored points out to the fact that actually I'm a little dysfunctional. Okay. It's not that there's nothing to eat. It's that I do not want what is put in front of me. Does it really matter that we grow bored? Yes, because when we be- get bored, we reach out to things that aren't meant to sustain us. When we get bored with food, we eat poorly. When we get bored or discouraged in relationships, we look to relationships that are outside the bounds of what are healthy for us. And when we get bored and discouraged with church or engaging with believers, then we grow disenchanted with God. Now, back to Psalm 34 here. No one would have blamed David if he looked around at the 400 gathered around him and said, This is bad. As soon as these clowns fall asleep, I'm sneaking out. I'm going to my own cave. There is nothing for me here. Nobody would have blamed him for that. That's what boredom does, and that's what it sounds like. Whether we're bored of what's in the pantry or bored with our walk with God. I'm not getting anything out of this. This doesn't fit my needs. There's nobody like me here. I'm out of here. Here's how it translates, though. I was not entertained. I, I was not engaged. It didn't do something for me. The opposite of being bored is not to be entertained. It's to be engaged. If entertainment is the cure for boredom, then boredom always comes back when the show is over. And in this season of fasting, I think it's really easy for us to feel bored and discouraged because we're a little weaker and we're a little fragile. And it's easy to say, why Why are we doing this? And get bored and give up. When that happens, it is more often the result of spiritual boredom than of physical weakness. Now, there may be some of you that have physical issues that make, make fasting really nearly impossible. And I understand that. And let me just say, let me tell you, I am not a doctor. For those of you that thought maybe I was, I'm not a doctor. If you need to eat, you absolutely need to eat. We don't want anybody to, to put their themselves physically in danger. But for most of us who are healthy, we're not starving. We're bored. And when we are bored, we say things and we believe things that we would never say any other time and that are not even true. When, let me just give you a couple of things we say when we are bored and kind of combat those with the word. When we are bored, uh, we might not say it, but we feel like we are an authority on things. You see this as a pastor at times. People who will check out of teaching time because they feel they have this idea that there is nothing under the sun. I can't tell you how many times I've, told people, or I've talked to people who said, I really love the Lord. I just, you know what, I've heard it all. I've heard every bit of teaching, and there's nothing for me to gain there. And they've heard thousands of sermons. What could this person that they're listening to possibly say that is new? That person teaching knows a lot, but so do they. Everyone has heard that passage preached about before, and everybody's thought, I've heard that a hundred times. But declaring yourself to be an authority on something is the beginning of admitting boredom. And declaring yourself to be an authority on something doesn't make you one. If you were to come to our house uh, after wanting to see the big pantry, which now you're all curious about the pantry, after wanting to see the pantry, the other thing that would probably invariably happen is my six-year-old scout would ask if you were up for a quiz because that's what he asks everybody. And what he is really wanting to say is, can I pepper you with questions about science? Because he loves science. I warn you, he's pretty good, okay? Okay. And uh, he likes nothing more than to find a question that you do not know the answer to. He finds great, uh, great reward in that. Scout feels like he's an expert, not from years of study, but because he has access to the Google Home. And any question that he asks the Google Home, he can get an answer for. He never gets tired of asking it questions, and it never gets tired of, of answering him. But his understanding of science is limited to the questions that he's asked. In other words, He knows what he knows, but he doesn't have any clue about what he doesn't know. He shined a flashlight against the wall of ignorance, and he has some idea of what he can see where that flashlight hits, but what he doesn't know is the wall goes out pretty far in both directions, and there's a lot that he doesn't know. Like science facts, we live in a time when the Bible and commentaries are accessible to all of us, and in our world, we confuse accessibility to those things With understanding all of the answers In reality, we aren't even sure what the great questions are yet Until the crisis is in front of us Now this would crush him And I'm a little afraid that he's upstairs listening to this right now But Scout is not an authority on science He's a very bright six-year-old with a good internet connection Okay, that's it We, none of us, are authorities on God. We only know what we know. In fact, in the grand scheme of things, we are all beginners. Isaiah 40, 25 and 26 says, To to whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and see who created these. Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power? He says, look around. Who do you know that can create the earth and then call forth the angels and know their names? The God that we serve is so much bigger than our experience, so much more vast than our imagination, that the idea of both pursuing him and then growing bored at the same time is kind of impossible. How can you grow bored of a being who continues to unfold in front of you? God's intent is to reveal himself to you in a gradual and intricate way in such a manner as to hold your fascination forever. From the beginning of time, everything God has done has contained great ability to get our attention. If you look at from the very beginning, Genesis 1:1. in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. You're like, I read that, and I have more questions than I have answers. Like, what was that like? That description of creation leaves us with more questions and answers, and we're still learning about those answers, and we'll learn about those until after Jesus returns. After thousands of years of revealing himself through that, Through uh, a series of covenants and sacrifices, he introduces us to his son with the information that his son has always existed. In John 1, it starts out, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he was with him in the beginning. All of these things were made through him, and without him, not anything was made. He's like, Jesus was there. Jesus fully understood it. And now you've got Jesus to comprehend, and he's going to unfold himself throughout history. John the Apostle put that together. He's like, you guys, he was there at the beginning. He has answers to all of these questions of who his father is. And it was John who records the book of Revelation that Jesus not only was there at the beginning, was there at the time when he walked on the earth, but will be there at the end, and he will unfold and explain himself. And John got a good look at him, but even as John describes him, he describes him almost entirely in um, terms that he was like. John's like, I can't even describe what he's like. He was like. Revelation 1, verse 14, the hair on his head, it was it was white like wool. Was it wool? Well, not really, but it was like wool. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And he goes on and on and on. He's like, guys, he is fascinating. And the more we learn about him, the more fascinating he's getting. Don't grow bored. You are not an authority on who he is because you heard four sermons on that one passage. Now, maybe the sermons could get better, but God cannot get more fascinating. This boggled John's mind. So we're no expert on this man. We're only starting to get to know him, and he will unfold his brilliance to us throughout eternity. One of the primary activities of the millennial kingdom, when Jesus returns, will be Jesus teaching about Jesus. (laughs) Some of you are going, that's actually going to be a real relief because I've heard of people t- teaching about Jesus for a long time, and I need to hear it from the source. But Isaiah 2, verses 1 and 2 talk about the people streaming to the mountain of the Lord. And it says, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, so that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Jesus himself for a thousand years will teach us how to follow him in a more intricate way. We think we're authorities because we've sat in church a couple of weeks a year for 10 or 20 or maybe even 40 years. I say we are all beginners. And we will be beginners through most of those thousand years. We're not authorities on Jesus. We're bored. If you feel like you've heard it all and you've seen it all, I challenge you, ask God to reveal himself to you in new ways. Not new ways to him, but new ways to you. Read the Bible, asking the question sincerely. And I promise your quiet times will come alive because you are not the expert. I am not the expert. We just get bored and tired. But he is fascinating and will be forever. So lie number one that we say is that we're an authority when really we're not, we're just beginners. But that makes us feel bored. Second lie that we say or believe, is that God is static. God is static. It doesn't move, and I have been there, and I have done that. When I was a kid, we went to visit Mount Rushmore, and uh, I was trying to put a year on it. I really can't, but I had to have been under 10, uh, and, and I base that solely on the fact that I remember wearing these green jeans, and I can't imagine any kid over 10 years old wearing these green jeans. So based on that scientific uh, analysis, I would say I was... I was below 10. Went to see Mount Rushmore and loved it. There it was. If you've ever seen it, it's there and it looks just like in the pictures. So about 15 years later, uh, we are newly married. We had a newborn son and Kelsey and I are in South Dakota. We decide, let's go see Mount Rushmore, drive across South Dakota to see Mount Rushmore. I remember getting out and looking at it and going, there it is. Yeah, exactly like I remember it. Washington, Jefferson, Roosevelt, Lincoln, they haven't changed the faces. It's the same four guys. And I haven't seen it in 25 years since, and I don't need to, because I've been there. I've done that. It's static. What's the point? Most people treat God like a static object. They saw him. They encountered him at one point in life. Maybe they even encountered him again later as an adult, but he was the same. He hasn't changed, and he hasn't moved. It's the same thing over and over, and they're bored. Now, they're right, but they're wrong. He does not change, but he does move. His character is the same, but his activity and his way of dealing with people can shift. He is not a mountain. He is a being with a will and with emotions. He's not static. He is on the move. And if he's on the move, we have a lifetime of asking, Okay, Lord, where are you going? And what are you doing right now? And how can I find you? And how can I engage with that? This is the error that leads to boredom. We think that God is static, But God is on the move. It's like, what does that mean that God is on the move? What does it mean that he's doing things? It means that he has intention, okay? He has a will and a plan for your life. He is not a mountain that you'll look at and stare at. He's a being that you encounter. And that idea of him having a will for your life has a couple of, of facets. It's got the idea of a general will and a specific will. His general will is that you would know his son, and that you would make his son known, and that you would be refashioned into his image and spend eternity with him. That is God's will for your life. You're wondering, what's God's will for my life? Those things I can say without a doubt are God's will for your life. That you'd know his son, that you would make him known, that you would be refashioned into his image, and you'd spend eternity with him. That's that's what he wants from you. First Timothy 2, 3, and 4 says, This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved, and to come to a knowledge of truth. That is his general will for you. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. He said that you should be refined and sanctified. His specific will is far more nuanced, and it includes some things that you're going to get perfectly, and it includes some things that you're going to get wrong. They're not issues of salvation, but they are issues of, of perfecting who you are. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding and in all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. In other words, he will reveal his intention to you and you will understand the way that you should go. And like a good father, when their child misses the mark, he's going to adjust the plan a little bit and get you back on track. He's not going to abandon you, but he has intention He's not something just to go and look at and be observed. He's a being to talk to and say, what are you doing and what do you want me to do? He's not a static object or some kind of Judeo-Christian totem pole. He has a will. And that requires that you make decisions that dovetail into his plan for your life. Does the house you buy matter? Does the job that you take matter? Are the plans you make, do those matter? Yes, because you could find yourself at odds with God. He is not static. He has intention. Because he, is, he moves, he has intention. Also, because he moves, there are times when he practices intervention. He involves himself in the affairs of men and women. Now, intellectually, we kind of live in the overflow of the age of enlightenment and deism, which uh, was very prevalent at the beginning of our nation, uh, where there was this idea that God created everything, um, but for the most part, he created a clock, wound up the clock, and put it on a shelf and walked away. The backlash to the age of enlightenment and, and modernism is, is post-modernism, which uh, seems to consider doubt as a virtue, and they doubt, does God really exist, and how do you know, and does he involve himself in our lives or not? Let me assure you, God is actively involved in the lives of men and women, and his hand is perceivable for those who search for him. Psalm 107:35 says, "He changes a wilderness into a pool of water and a dry land into springs of water." I look back at our history of following the Lord and I can I can see times when his hand intervened. We, there were godly interventions that changed circumstances in our lives. He even promises in the forward books of history that he will change circumstances out of a grace and a love for humanity. He will cut short the end of days, because if he did not, no one would survive. Mark 13 20, he is prophesying about the end of the age. And Jesus says, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, for whom he chooses, he shortened the days. So God doesn't just have intention for your life. He intervenes in your life at times. Some of you have been going hardcore one direction, and suddenly things went like a 45 degree angle, and you are trying to figure out where did you get it wrong? It might've been the intervention of the Lord. Like that might've been the best thing that happened to you because he doesn't just have uh, intention for you. He has intervention on your behalf at times. So he has intention. He has intervention. How else do we know he's on the move? He has a sense of timing. Okay. Now, because God is the source of all truth, we confuse him with truth and we treat him like a fact. Okay. Facts don't change. And, of course, God doesn't change, but facts are just facts, and they will always be. There are facts about God that do not change, but that doesn't mean that God exists only outside of time like some inanimate object. No, he existed before time began. He invented time in order to interact with you. He said, I want to create a people, and I want them to choose me, and, well, that's going to take time. Never needed time before, but, okay, here's time to give people an opportunity. And so he interacts with us in time, and because of that, God has a sense of timing. 2 Peter 3, 8, 9 says, But do not forget this one thing. Dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. When God began to draw your heart with great intensity, some of you remember, We have talked with some of you about your conversion to, to faith in Jesus, and you felt a drawing on your heart. Why did he draw you when he drew you? It's because his sense of timing, he knew that that's when you would respond. And he said, okay, here we go. I've got this one. They, they're open to me now. He's got an incredible sense of timing. We talked two weeks ago about how Jesus' brothers goaded him about revealing himself, teased him. Are you going gonna to go to the big festival? Or are you going to tell everybody? Anybody who wants to be a leader would, would promote themselves that way. And he told them, no, I'm not doing it now because I have a sense of timing. If you don't have any sense of timing, any time works. But I have a sense of timing. Was he really the son of God on the day that he said that? Yes, but he chose to wait to reveal himself till his timing was perfect. The thing you are asking God for right now that has gone unanswered is not necessarily ruled out. It may be that God, in his timing, is waiting for the season when you will receive maximum benefit and he will receive maximum glory. He's not a static being. He has a sense of timing. Lamentations 3 tells us it is good to wait for the salvation of the Lord. It is good to wait on God's timing. Having rushed him a couple of times, let me tell you, you don't want to do that. You want to wait for his move. It's been the craziest year of our lives. I say, are the collective are me, you, everyone we know. And there have been so many things that I have wanted to rush and press the button on and let's make this happen. And the Lord, in his graciousness, has tied our hands and said, just sit down. Just just sit down. The timing's not right. Well, Lord, if, if we want to do this and this, we would have to do this and this by now. And he's like, just sit down. Just sit down. For those with no sense of timing, any timing works. But for me, timing is everything. He's not a static being. He has intention. For you. He has a sense of timing for you. If you're drifting into boredom, you got to understand we're not serving a static God. We're serving a God with intention who intervenes in our behalf, involves timing. We can be watching for his plan, his hand on our lives. And when he is inviting us to move, that's not boring. That's a strategy at the top level. He is not boring, he is dynamic and he moves. So finally, we get spiritually bored because we are observers who were destined to be participants. From the very beginning of creation, man was placed into a role of cooperation with God, the Father. God created man, put him in the garden to work the garden. Did God create man because he needed a gardener? Can you imagine God's like, i got this garden, but man, I can't get all this work done. Uh, What could I do? And God gets on Craigslist. Of course, there's No listings because there's no created man. No, no. He didn't create man because he needed help. He created man because he desired to partner with him. From the very beginning, the act of tending the garden was partnering with God. We don't just wait until the millennial kingdom to rule with Jesus. He gives us places of authority in our own lives, in this life, for us to manage and rule. Now, the bulk of that is in our own lives, to manage and rule our own lives. But it is also to do other things, and here's what working working with God looks like. It is a reciprocal relationship. Okay, goes both ways. First of all, His work involves you. Philippians two thirteen says, "For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure." So His He works through you, and then your work is unto Him. Colossians three. 23 and 24 says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So in working with him, there's this reciprocal thing where he works through us and we do things and go, wow, I really sense the pleasure of the Lord on that. I didn't I didn't really think about that, but he used me there. And then, in the everyday mundane things that we're called to do, we do them unto the Lord. You know what working as unto the Lord does? It takes a lot of stress out of it. It takes a lot of frustration out of it. If you work in retail, first of all, God bless you. I worked in retail at one point. Everyone should work in retail for a while. It is a character builder. But if you work in retail, and you have that customer who comes in and you can tell before they walk through the door that, you know, it's almost as if they wear a shirt that says trouble. This guy is going to give you a hassle. If you work to please that customer, you're going to go home frustrated. You don't work to please that customer. You work to please the Lord. You may please that customer in the process. You may not, but when you're done, you go home and the Lord is happy with you because how you regarded that customer. That's what it means to partner with him and work with him. There could be no better time for us to hear this message that says that the cure to boredom is to move from being observers to participants. And here's why. And I say this really with more prophetic unction than I do factual understanding, okay? So don't write this down and go, oh, he knows something that he isn't telling us. No, that's, that's not true. But I believe that sooner rather than later, we're going to be gathering on a weekly basis. And I felt it for a while. And that, has, that feeling is intensified. So has the search for a spot or, a, or you know, some kind of gathering place where we can, can meet. I do not have a spot landed. I don't have it all figured out. And I'm not going to pull a rabbit out of my hat Monday morning. And you're going to get an email and go, oh, we figured it out. No. But the search is intensifying. There are options. And uh, I'm very, very excited about that. And it's coming. But when it does... Many of you who have been in observer roles are gonna need to shift into participant roles because it's a completely different thing to hold a service in public than it is to log on to Zoom and watch a strange little man in his basement, okay? It's just different. Meeting virtually does not offer a lot of active roles. Maybe at your house, maybe one person makes the coffee and the other, you know, they're the greeting team and you turn on the laptop, you're the IT department, but that's all it takes. But for the bridge to go where we believe it is going, in-person gatherings where you can invite your neighbors and you can worship corporately, all of that changes. Many of you will find yourself operating in opportunities that you haven't even considered yet. And it will involve us in a hands-on way, and it will move us from observers, which many of us have been for a year now, and that's okay because God's timing is perfect, but into participants. And we won't have the privilege or the uh, the boredom of just observing anymore. We're going to get involved. I've had a phrase on my heart for about a week. I mentioned it in the prayer meeting the other night about wondering what the next phase of the bridge looks like. And uh, the phrase that keeps coming to mind is DIY. All right. Nothing is more DIY than a new congregation that emerges from the underground. By DIY, I mean do-it-yourself, okay? Uh, There is an entire genre of YouTube shows out there that are all about DIY projects. Make your own bread, build your own deck, fix your own car. People that are finding empowerment in doing things themselves. And as we move towards public meetings, when the Lord opens that door in His timing and with His leading, there's going to be a lot of things we're going to find ourselves doing ourselves that we've never had to do before. And while we want the bridge to reflect a theocracy of sorts, we want to be led by God through, you know, leaders and, and, and uh, groups of leadership teams and that sort of thing. We want to be a theocracy in a perfect world. It also is going to need to function a little bit like a duocracy. You maybe you've never heard the phrase duocracy. This is how a duocracy works. If you see something that needs to be done, that means you're probably going to end up doing it. If you see something and go, somebody should, the response to that is going to be, when can you? Because that's just going to be how it's going to have to happen. There are a lot of things we're going to need as we move nearer towards that. Things like hospitality teams, things like uh, children's ministry. Just here's your warning, okay? I am fasting that the Lord will be speaking to some of you. I don't like cornering people. I just, I, I'm, I don't like it. And part of my role really is recruiting and saying, hey, can you help us with this? I don't feel bad about that, but it works way better if the Lord speaks to people in advance. And some of you will look at things and say, boy, somebody ought to, and it might be the Lord is speaking through you and saying you ought to. Be prepared for an extensive speech on duocracy as we step into that phase, because it really will be the only way for us to move into that phase that the Lord is calling us for. Now, DIY is do-it-yourself, but it doesn't mean do-it-alone, okay? It doesn't mean that you're going to get something dumped on you. It means together we're going to move forward and do this. And it is everything but boring. Observing is boring. Participating is what we're made to do. How can we possibly be bored if we wake up tomorrow and ask God, so what are we going to do today? Lord, what is it you have for us as a church, as individuals, as a family? In this season of fasting, when it's easy to get a little discouraged, when it's easy to go stand in the pantry and just you feel better because you just look at food, it's easy to grow bored. I want to challenge you. We are not the experts. He is on the move And he wants to partner with us and wants to work with us. So I want to pray and uh, ask him to begin to speak to us about some of those things. And uh, let me just encourage you, uh, some of you, to also unmute your mics and, and join us as we pray about this. Because there will be a lot to do. And it's going to be some of the most exciting time of our lives. We will not be bored. I pledge that to you. So, Father, we thank you for the season that you're bringing us into, and we, we say that in advance, not knowing what is next, but eager, and knowing that you are not static, you're on the move, and that you love your people, and you involve us with what you are doing. And, Lord, right now, I just come against uh, the boredom and lethargy that is settling across our, our culture that says we've seen it all, we've done it all. Lord, we are fascinated with you. Will you reveal yourself to us, God, as we enter into this next season?